1. Sunday morning we are in a series entitled Gleanings from Genesis, and we come to chapter 31 today. If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles right now, and they'll give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. A reminder that tonight we'll be enjoying the Lord's Supper because it's our second Sunday, so we do that uh, each month as a part of our regular service. Tonight will be kind of a special service. We finished the book of Daniel uh, last week, and then we're going to be gone on this Footsteps of Paul tour uh, a little bit, and I didn't want to start the Gospel of Luke and then be gone and then start it, you know, go back into it again. And uh, so we'll go into Luke next and then into the Minor Prophets, finish the Old Testament, and into the Gospel according to John. So uh, tonight will be the Lord's Supper, extended time of worship, and then sharing a little bit related to some of the things the Lord's doing uh, far and near. And uh, I think God's got something special for us tonight. So each of you are invited for, uh, to that. Would you also um, consider praying for uh, the group that's going on the footsteps of Paul Tour? Karen and I are leaving this Saturday. The larger group is... There's 88 of us all together going to be leaving the following Monday, and uh, we'll meet them in Frankfurt, and then all travel into Greece uh, together. But to pray for health, pray for safety, and then pray most of all for uh, everything that that trip is intended to be about spiritually in our lives between us and the Lord as a group and individually that that would happen. So we'll be over there for a little less than two weeks, and uh, if you would pray it would mean an awful lot to all of us. In um, Genesis chapter 31, we'll pick things up in verse 17. It's got the allergy things going on, huh? Anybody else? Yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't, it's hard to know what you got these days with any time you clear your throat, you know, everybody's doing this kind of a deal. It's a, it, then Jacob rose and set his uh, sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all of his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gathered at Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's, and Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. And so he fled with all that he had. He arose and went across the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had uh, come to Laban, the Syrian, in a dream by night, and said to him, Be careful, Buckaro, I've got my eye on you, and uh, that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And so Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me? and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have uh, sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. 
and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in, uh, now you have done foolishly in doing so. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have surely uh, gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. But with it, whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And then uh, Laban went into Jacob's tent, <clears throat> into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in a camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all around the tent, but could not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord, that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is with me. And uh, he searched, but did not find the household idols. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for um, the privilege and the blessing of being able to assemble together in this place as a portion of your body in this community and to be able to sing to you worship and praise and honor and glory which is our eternal portion and we are so thankful to get a head start on all of it in this life. We thank you for your word and the privilege of being able to turn to it and we ask that you would anoint it by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak deeply into our lives and our hearts, our mind, into our relationship with you today as we explore it. And we ask for this work of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> These events that we're reading about here occurred uh, some 20 years after Jacob had uh, left his home in Beersheba, uh, fleeing the uh, wrath of his brother, uh, life-threatening uh, 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 wrath, and uh, made his way to Padan Aram in order to uh, spend some time while Esau was cooling down uh, around uh, his uncle uh, Laban. And, uh, and so having left Beersheba, having had his vision with, uh, at, at Bethel of the, of the Lord, of the great ladder, the angels ascending and descending on the ladder, all of this is 20 years later. And at this time, uh, in earlier in the chapter, which we didn't read, God spoke to uh, Jacob and told him that essentially his time was up. It was time now to leave uh, Haran, make his way back home to be with his family. You remember God had promised to Jacob that, God was, that he was going to do that uh, at the vision that, that Jacob received at uh, Bethel. The Lord said, gave him the Abrahamic covenant, promised to protect him, promised to provide for him, and promised to safely return him to the land. And now finally he gets the, the, the call and the approval to do so. That was the reason for his departure. 
Uh, Laban paints it as uh, something related to his fear or, or some other issue. But supremely, God had commanded uh, Jacob, and, and he was obeying uh, the Lord. And Jacob then uh, departed uh, without telling Laban. He took only what belonged to him, at least to his knowledge. At that time, Laban was off shearing his sheep, separated from uh, Jacob and, and his flocks. And significantly, we were, uh, were told as we read that Rachel, before departing, stole the household idols that belonged to her father Laban. Three days later, following the departure of Jacob, headed back to the promised land, uh, as Jacob leaves, Laban is informed uh, of all of this, and he proceeded to attempt to chase them down with a kind of a posse of uh, his relatives. And he overtook Jacob in his caravan, who was moving much slower because of the size of the flock, because of uh, his wives, because of the children and the, the size of his family. And, and he was overtaken there in the, uh, after seven days in the mountains of Gilead. He didn't quite get to Canaan, didn't quite get to Israel. Uh, the mountains of Gilead are, are in what we know as uh, Jordan today. And, uh, and uh, so here he comes. God appears to Laban in a dream, warned him not only not to harm Jacob physically, but don't even, don't even try to harm him verbally, hands off. And, uh, and, he put in, in, and God put the fear of God, and God can do that, uh, in Laban's life uh, concerning that. Clearly, in light of the, the warning of God to Laban, Laban, tend, Laban intended to do harm uh, to Jacob. No doubt he intended to, would have, without the warning of the Lord not to do any harm to him, he would have taken every flock uh, and every sheep and goat that, that Jacob had, would have uh, taken back his daughters, would have taken all of, the, the, uh, all of his children from him, and then sent Jacob on home to his parents with, uh, without anything. Laban then overtook Jacob and uh, confronted him, and uh, he's just the sleaziest, oiliest con man you ever want to meet in life. I don't know if you've ever met a Laban. I, I've only really met one, and uh, you never forget them when you do. They're always conning you, always, always sleazy, oily conning you. And uh, so here he comes, and, and he begins this, uh, the same person that he's always been, and he rebukes Jacob for uh, de uh, uh, denying him, uh, Laban, the, uh, the privilege that he was so eager to do. He would have gladly sent them off with a celebration and a party and a feast, and you didn't let me kiss my daughters and uh, kiss all of my uh, grandchildren, and all of it's just pure manipulation and uh, just a guilt trip that he's laying on <clears throat> on everyone but at this point he's only kidding himself uh, everyone else has had 20 years to wake up to the fact that uh, he doesn't mean anything that he's saying he's working this uh, somehow and uh, and then uh, he uh, they've been declared to Jacob that he had he had come to and clearly he had come to harm Jacob and only the fear of God's judgment had uh, hindered him 
And, uh, and then, as we mentioned uh, last study, the remainder of the chapter is Jacob, now 20 years of frustration. He finally speaks up and he lays into uh, Laban and unloads uh, the 20 years worth of frustration and, and really the ugliness of, of that man. All of that then sets the stage for what I want to spend a few minutes examining here this morning, and that is found in verse 30, the accusation in this setting that uh, Laban made against Jacob when he accused him with the words, but why did you steal my gods? And uh, I want to look at it this morning in posing really a, a single simple question to each of us this morning, and the question is, can your gods be stolen? And, and it may seem to be just an absolutely ridiculous question on uh, one hand, and, uh, and yet really it isn't. So again, one thing we learn, obvious thing we learn from this passage is to ask ourselves concerning whoever or whatever uh, we consider to be our God in, in life and to ask of, of that whoever or whatever, can my God be stolen? And when Laban asked the question, but why did you steal my God? Uh, he doesn't do it with a twinkle in his eye. He doesn't do it with a smirk on his face. He doesn't uh, chuckle about the statement with kind of an uncomfortable uh, self-awareness about how silly something like that coming out of a person's mouth uh, might be. He said it absolutely straight-faced to Jacob. But why did you steal my gods? And he's in a panic. Because without his gods, he felt he was without divine protection uh, in his life. But while his greatest concern at the moment in his life was over the fact that his gods had been stolen, his greatest alarm should have been over the fact that his gods could be stolen at all. And all of this would actually be funny. It would all be humorous. If it weren't so tragic, and if it weren't so contemporary, and if it weren't so prevalent even today. And the accusation, this accusation of Laban, it reveals to us, and this is vital to understand, it reveals to us how easy it can be for a person to go all the way through life without giving any deep consideration to the gods that they worship, to how uh, content a person can be to worship a god without subjecting that god to any thorough examination at all, uh, without putting it through not only some kind of a rigorous test, for its qualifications to have that kind of a place in our lives, but to allow these things to go untested in our lives, all of our lives. Jacob is not a young man. I mean, Laban is not a young man at this point when he makes uh, this statement. And so one obvious lesson to be found here is don't worship a God that can be stolen. Because if it cannot protect itself, 
than it, uh, from theft, then it cannot protect you. And here you have the admission uh, by Laban himself that his gods uh, were exposed to be less powerful than a thief. And when you live in a world full of thieves, that's a real problem. Now, at this point, someone might dismiss uh, uh, the introduction to all of this. And uh, right at the start with the protest, listen, I can tell that none of this is going to have any application to me at all because I don't believe in God. And as a result, uh, I don't worship any God. But any person that would make that uh, claim, it's important that if you do, it's important for you to know that God, the God of the Bible, heartily disagrees with you on that issue. Because the Bible declares that every single person in this world is a worshiper, and indeed a worshiper of some God. And that practically speaking, there are no atheists in the world. And I think that very often in our culture, we hear a great deal about the atheist who is so admired. He declares that he doesn't believe in the existence of God. He's thrown off this shackle uh, off of his or her life. And as a result, the culture being what it is, this kind of person is uh, esteemed very highly for the stand that they're making. Uh, and they must be a deeply logical person, a highly rational person, that they, they are, must be a clearer thinker, a more critical thinker, more fair-minded, more intellectual than uh, all of these you know, fools that believe in uh, the existence of God. And that's the esteem that an atheist holds very often in a culture now. But God is uh, unimpressed. Uh, by such a position because it's very important to realize that as much as atheists don't believe in the God of the Bible that the God in the Bible doesn't believe in atheists because practically speaking they simply do not exist and so the great question that is raised by all of this in terms of how the Bible sees things is that if all of us are worships, worshipers as the Bible contends, then how in the world does one identify the God that we serve? And uh, whether we do so knowingly, whether we do so unknowingly. And we do so by identifying what is the master passion of our lives by identifying that single great thing in our lives that has captured our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. What is it that excites me the most in life? What is it that gets me out of bed in the morning uh, to begin the day? What is it that I think about more than anything else in life? Where do I uh, invest my discretionary time in life. Uh, where does my money go? I mean, you've heard the old saying, follow the money in order to get to the bottom of anything. Well, it works in, in this uh, situation as well. And very often where our money goes in life is a very good indicator of our master passion or our God in life. 
And when I answer those questions, I will have a very good idea uh, as to uh, what my God or what my master passion is in life. And a person's master passion, it can be money, it can be sports, it can be power, it can be sex, it can be human intellect, it can be uh, man-centered or man-made philosophy or religion, it can be knowledge, it can be travel, it can be food, it can be entertainment, it can be nature, it can be self, and on and on the list uh, can go. But the Bible takes all of this even further, because not only does the Bible teach that every person is a worshiper, but the Bible further declares that we are becoming like the God that we worship. We are being fashioned by our master passion in life. In Psalm 115, verse 8, is God was uh, challenging and, and uh, speaking about all of the various uh, idols that people worship in life, he declared, and the, it, 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 those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. And this idea that not only do, uh, not only do <clears throat> each of us worship a God in this life, but we are becoming like the master passion of our life, the God uh, of our life, you see the evidence for it all around us. But sometimes it takes the Bible to make us stop and notice what's going on all around us all the time, but we fail to notice. But the fact that we're becoming like whatever we worship, the evidence for that is all around us. The man who worships money, he only becomes more greedy and more addicted to money. The man who worships power, he becomes more and more power hungry as time goes on. Uh, the man who uh, worships sex, he becomes only more and more lust-driven uh, as time goes on. The man who worships himself uh, becomes only more and more selfish as, as time goes on. And thus, if we become like the God that we worship in life, and we do, the only, uh, only the God of the Bible can be safely worshipped in this world. And the knowledge that we are becoming like the God that we worship is uh, uh, news that is music to the ears of a Christian. Because as we know the Bible from the Scriptures and we see Him represented within the Scriptures, uh, it is a thrill for us to become more and more like Jesus Christ as each day a little bit more of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, something of us is being uh, conformed more greatly into the image of Christ. We are becoming like what we worship. But in this case, it is a great thing. And Paul spoke of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and he said, But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding, uh, uh, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed. That's passive. It's happening to us. Being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, there are additional tests that the God of the Bible encourages us to put our, the master passions of our life to. 
beyond the rejection of any God that can be lost or any God that can be stolen or taken away from us. And one of those is that we should never worship a God, uh, worship any uh, created thing. And that includes even what has been created by God. Not to worship the heavens, the earth, and or anything that is in them. Uh, whether it's the sun or the moon or the stars or diamonds or gold or silver or a rose or anything. And, and uh, the reason why we shouldn't worship any created thing, even when that thing's been created by God, is because the creator of those things is always greater than his creation. So to worship the creation of the creator as opposed to worshiping the creator himself is always to stop one step short of the logical progression in, in all of this. Why in the world would I worship the creation, the lesser, as opposed to the creator who is greater? And the Apostle Paul observed how prevalent this uh, folly is in the world in his first letter uh, to the church at Rome. How readily people worship the creation rather than the creator. And he addresses and exposes not only the folly of it, but the disastrous results of getting those two things backwards. When he wrote to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, of those who get it backwards, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. But neither should we worship uh, or make a master passion of anything that we can create or anything that human beings can create whether it's a home, whether it's an automobile or money or some other material thing, or whether it's music or great film or letter, uh, literature or learning or philosophy or any moral code devised uh, by man for the simple reason that because by virtue of the fact that the creator is always greater than the creation, and the designer is always greater than the design. To worship anything we can create or design is to worship something less than ourselves. And in terms of finding the master passion uh, in life that is worthy of a human life, the great focus should never be upon what man can create and what we can create nor upon man, even ourselves, because, uh, but rather upon the one who has created us, that is God. It is illogical to stop anywhere short in that uh, progression as the Bible brings it out. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created uh, them. Worship the one who has created us. Isaiah chapter 4, 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. 
uh, we could translate it very loosely by God saying, I've looked around. I'm it. There are no other gods out here. Psalm 139, verse 14, the psalmist writes, I will praise you, speaking of, to the Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. That is where our praise is to be directed to. Additionally, we, should, uh, we need to be careful that we do not worship a God that we must carry, uh, as opposed to a God who will carry us. There's a, a, almost a humorous passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 4, where uh, God is, makes uh, the following kind of observation concerning the folly of the idolatry of the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Babylonians. The two great uh, gods that were worshipped uh, by the Babylonians were Bel and uh, Nebo. And, and God uh, observed uh, the, uh, how these gods, the, the attention and care that they required on the part of people uh, that, uh, that claimed to worship them. He said, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. In other words, they have to be carted around, pulled by cattle on carts. Your carriages were heavy, heavy, heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, uh, they bow down together. Uh, they could not consider the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Uh, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. So here you have Bel and Nebo, the principal gods of, of Babylon. Bel was worshipped as the creator god. He was supreme among the Babylonian gods in terms of power. Nebo was Bel's son. And he was the patron of wisdom and the art of writing, and his function was to write on the tablets of destiny, the fates decreed uh, by the gods for the coming year. And so God watches this annual procession that would go on uh, associated with the Babylonian New Year, uh, year in and uh, year out. And uh, here are these two gods, uh, both the father and the son, Bel and Nebo, they'd be paraded through the streets, loaded on carts, a great progression of people following them and celebrating the power of Babylon and her gods. But the Lord God of Israel, as he's watched this for so many years, finally he expresses his concerns. And he noted that these gods had to be carried uh, by their followers in order to get from one place to another. And it seemed uh, incredible to the Lord that the God of power would need to be transported and that he would need to be transported by animals by beasts, by cattle. And it also seemed inconsistent 
uh, to the Lord for the God of wisdom to be dependent upon the dumbest of animals uh, for his transportation as well. And God also took note of how heavy these idols were. The strain that the oxen were under to pull the carts that they had been uh, loaded onto, and the cattle uh, weary as they're pulling these carts, and it's causing them to stagger and to fall, and the crushing weight that these idols added to the beast, to, to say nothing of what they, they added to those that worshiped them. And it seemed uh, inconceivable to God that man, conscious as we are of our need for strength and of a wisdom that is greater than our own, that we would cut uh, short our search for such a God and be willing to settle for a God that must be carried. And by virtue of it, to settle then for a God and a religion that only places a greater burden upon a human being, rather than lifting the significant burdens that are upon our lives because of the fallenness of this world and because of sin. And then, as he says in that same passage, in contrast to these gods that had to be carried, the Lord presented himself to his people as the God who carried them. And he declared that uh, Israel had been birthed as a nation in God's call of Abraham, and, uh, and, uh, the, uh, the, and that God had upheld them and carried them since that time. He went further to promise uh, to carry them even through old age. That's the time where we're most aware of our need to be carried, most aware of our uh, vulnerability. He promised to carry and to bear and to deliver them uh, and us as his children. And the lesson here very clearly is don't worship a God you have to carry. Worship the God who is able and willing to carry you. And that is the God of the Bible uh, through faith in his son, Jesus. All other gods are worse than useless because now you not only are on your own in terms of taking care of yourself, but now you have to take care of them. And what a contrast all of this is to the invitation that Jesus gave uh, to every single one of us in this room and all seven billion or nine billion or however many people are in the world uh, today. When he declared in this regard, in terms of our need for someone to carry us, and not another thing in life that becomes a burden to us, and certainly not in the form of some God, and Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Elsewhere in the scripture, as we test our gods in life, God warns against worshiping a God that must be supported by us, that must be maintained by us. Jeremiah chapter 10. 
Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. And then God describes the Gentile process of making an idol. For one cuts a tree from the forest. Uh, The work of the hands of the workmen with the ax, he fashions a god. And then they decorate it with silver and gold. And, and then they fasten it with nails and hammers uh, so that it will not topple in order to provide stability to, to the idol. And therefore, going to test things in terms of not worshiping something that requires our support and our uh, maintenance. There goes cars. Uh, There goes home, stocks, bonds, every other material thing, because they're all dependent upon us for their maintenance. And it doesn't mean that a person can't have these things and that they can't have a place within our lives, but it does mean that they should never become our master passion or our God in our lives. And I know that I speak for most of you, if not all of you, when I say that I am very thankful for a God who supports and maintains me (laughs) as opposed to the other way around. How exhausting would it be to have a God that you have to maintain and that you have to uh, support? It would be awful to have that kind of a role reversal in life that this God requires my maintenance and and my support rather than bringing stability and maintaining me and bringing that into my life. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, the Lord said, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And it makes him unique in all of the world. That same passage in Jeremiah chapter 10 warns us against worshiping a God that depends upon us to provide the God with stability as opposed to bringing stability into, uh, into our lives. Again, I don't know about you, but I think I do. But I needed a God, and I still need a God, who will introduce stability uh, into my life, and not one who is looking to me uh, for stability. Uh, Sometimes you'll have these... um, uh, these telephones they'll have on the radio or on the television, Christian things, trying to, try to raise money. And uh, in the old days, I don't know how much they do it anymore, but in the old days, it was very common for them to say, listen, uh, we're low on money. We need you. This is a key month. This is the time that we raise the money. And God needs you like he's never needed you before. Now, how alarming is that? Uh, that God needs me. Well, things are more dire than I thought if God needs me. But the saying is actually true in a different way because uh, God needs us like he's never needed us before is true in the sense that he's never needed us before. He is the one that brings that kind of stability into our uh, lives. And uh, Psalm 62 verse 7 
my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. And then further in that same passage, it also warns us against worshiping any God that has to be decorated. Any God that's dependent upon us to provide a wow factor uh, in order for him or her or it to be attractive to us and attractive to others uh, as well. The God of the Bible already possesses a beauty that cannot be improved upon. And it is a beauty that is beautiful both to the sinner and to the saint. I mean, here you have King David who was both sinner and saint, as each of us are as Christians. And he wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what purpose? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. We are further warned against the folly of worshiping anything, any god, any idol, any master passion that is unable to speak, unable to hear, unable to see, unable to smell, because such a God would be less than us in that regard. And why would we worship something that is less than us? Again, the fullness of the passage in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 3, I'll read it to you. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their uh, throat. And again, those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. And then additionally, we should never worship a God who cannot reveal to us the mysteries of the past and the mysteries of the future. Mysteries that we could not otherwise know as human beings, apart from the fact that He is able to, from His perspective, uh, provide that revelation of past and future to us. A God who... Uh, we want to wor- don't want to worship a God who cannot provide revelation to us concerning the future and to do so with 100% accuracy, as the God of the Bible does. Fully a third of the Bible that you have on your lap right now, when it was written in its original form, was prophetic. It spoke of things to uh, come in the future, and all of it providing us with this ample material by with which to test God in this regard, a test that He passes unfailingly. And of course, the most famous and important prophecies in the Bible have to do with the coming of Jesus Christ into human history. 
and Jesus fulfilled over 300 uh, specific prophecies concerning the Messiah in his first coming as a witness to God's ability to speak to the future, among other things. A God who cannot, additionally, cannot provide us with revelation concerning the past ought not to be worshipped. A God who cannot, as a result of that, give us revelation uh, that is the answers to the greatest questions in life. Questions like, what is the origin of the heavens and the earth? How did it come to exist? What is the origin of man? How did we come to exist? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? Why is the world that we live in such a mess? Why is it filled with such suffering? Why is it filled with such tragedy? Why are people so messed up? Why are we so messed up? Why are people uh, so broken and sinful as opposed to being perfect? In the passage where God himself challenged the gods and the idols of Judah to declare the former things and the future things as an evidence of their worthiness to be worshipped as God. It's found in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21, and God spoke to the idols. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. And let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were. That, as a reason word, we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we might know you are God's. Yes, do good, do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it all together. And then God says, indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. Evidently, when God gave these idols a, a chance to step up and speak authoritatively, accurately, verifiably uh, concerning the past and the future, um, there was silence. There was no response at all from them. And they failed the test. And so God in that passage, he lowers the standard way down for them. And he says, all right, uh, I, you, don't gotta, you don't have to give us any former things, any future things at all. Let's just take it down. Let's, let's begin on a more elementary uh, uh, level. And, and God said in that passage that he just asked them to do something. Just to do anything that would be an evidence uh, of some kind of intelligence or some kind of life. Just just jump up and slam a basketball, dunk it. There's all kinds of people in the world that can do that. Or stand up and begin to sing. Sing my, uh, my way. Sing New York, New York. Or if that's all too highbrow for you, sing Who Let the Dogs Out? Or Achy Breaky Heart. It reminds me whenever I think of this passage, if you ever watched the Looney Tunes cartoon where that frog would only sing when, you know, when the, only the person was present like that. God says, do something. Uh, do something, I anything. 
and uh, anything that's good or bad. I mean, he dropped the standard to next to nothing as a, a revelation of their strength and their life and their reality, and there was still nothing. And then finally, and it's not because we're running out of examples, but because we're running out of time, we should never worship any God who doesn't have an explanation for the origin and the existence of death and with it who then does not uh, with that provide us with a demonstrated victory over death don't follow any master passion in life who cannot answer questions in life like this why do people die why does death exist at all what's the explanation for its origin in the human condition what happens after death Am I prepared for death? What must I do to be prepared for death? And the God of the Bible is without peer in answering those questions. And one day the Jewish religious leaders, they came to Jesus and they asked for him to give them a sign as an evidence to his claims to be the Jewish Messiah and to be the Son of God. And they had signs enough for this. For three and a half years he had filled the land north, south, east, west with people raised from the dead and miracles in his teaching and everything about his life. But he condescended to give them one additional sign. And, uh, and, uh, and he, by speaking of his resurrection and his authority over death, he responded and he said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the sign that he gave to them was the sign of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That as Noah was three days and three nights only in the heart of that great fish, that Jesus would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights alone speaking of his resurrection. And what was Jesus communicating, among other things? Jesus was communicating to each and every one of us to make sure that your God has conquered death. And don't make any salvation, any uh, savior, any material or intellectual or spiritual thing, the master passion of your life, if it has not conquered death on your behalf and in all of human history only Jesus has done that and if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian my sole purpose in delving into all of this rather than skipping a relatively obscure passage and going on to something else my sole purpose is to get somebody just somebody anybody to get you to consider, like Laban, how careless we are in this culture in really and rigorously examining our gods and the master passions of our life for their worthiness to have that position within our lives their worthiness of our life being spent in service to them 
and, and uh, living for them. And then to take that master passion, your current master passion, and put it up against the God of the Bible and up against Jesus by comparison, and who they are and what they are as described in the Bible, and what they desire to be in your life and what they alone can be in your life, and then to repent of following those idols and those gods, those things that aren't worthy of a single person's worship, and turn to Jesus Christ this morning and put your trust in Him as your Savior, come into His kingdom, become His disciple and His follower, and now to offer your life in worship to one who has made you and created you and saved you and is worthy of spending your life uh, for. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for uh, this morning. And if you sit here this morning and you're not ready to do that yet, you say, I don't really know anything about the Bible. I'm just here because somebody's taking me out to Mimi's for lunch afterwards or whatever it might be. Or I popped in um, to see, uh, I wanted to see what a church might be like. You said, but I don't know enough about the Bible and I don't know enough about the God of the Bible to make that decision uh, today. Then take home a free Bible from us today and begin to investigate the God of the Bible, your creator, the one who loves your soul like nobody else does and nothing else can and begin to explore the scriptures to learn about him and see if there is anything in life that compares to him as an object of worship, compares to him as being worthy of being the master passion of our life, the God of our life. We are never afraid of where the decision that a person will come to about an honest person will come to based upon the scriptures and the reading of them as a revelation of God. I have a friend named Don McClure. He's a pastor and he raised several boys. And uh, one of them was a real handful. He will go unnamed. This is not confidential, by the way. And a real, real handful and raised in a Christian home and just was disrupting the entire family, the entire home, rebellion, the whole thing. Until finally it was necessary to kick him out of the house, kick him out on the street. And, uh, and Don tells the story as he looked at his son there on the, on the doorstep and as, as all of this was taking place, and he told his son, as his son was walking away, he said, listen, if you find something better out there, you come back and tell me. And this son lived on the streets, sleeping on park benches and in bus stops and all over the town that Don was pastoring in for months. And then finally one day he appeared on the doorstep and he said to his father, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find anything 
better and has walked with the Lord since. And so it will be with each and every one of us. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray this morning and I ask that this whole issue of Laban and the carelessness with which we choose our gods in this culture and worship our gods and demand of our gods that all of that would be exposed in every heart that has heard my voice today and is spending their life very far from the place that their worship, their adoration, and their lives should be directed. And that is to you, their creator, and the one who also wants to be their God. And I pray that you would use this time today to somehow speak to that one or that two or that three to be awakened to how their life is being spent and who and what their God is and the casualty that they are becoming as a result and would turn to you. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.